Dead Boat Written by Anthony D. Redden Published by Kyanite Publishing Read by the author Chapter 1 The air was stale Small caged pyres burned the worthless belongings of previous inmates that had since been ushered to their death upon the gallows of Old Town. Groups of men and children huddled around the glowing embers, trying to warm themselves against the bitter November chill. In the distance, bell tolls from the church reminded those who still cared that people were going to die today, and tomorrow, and the next day. People never stayed around for long after the governor had condemned them, and the governor tended to condemn everybody that stood before him. Spain of 1726 was a terrible place to live, but a far worse place to die. As the jailer struggled with the aged lock and forcefully swung open the cell door, everyone seemed to hold their breath in anticipation. The large Neanderthal of a man stepped into the room and proceeded to hack up phlegm before spitting carelessly into the crowd of silent onlookers. The thought of rushing the jailer and breaking away to freedom had long since been eroded from the thoughts of the inmates, who had now come to mostly accept their fate. The jailer paused for a moment, contemplating his next move, then gave a huge sigh and plodded further into the squalor. Two rough-looking heavy-set guards followed him in and stood by his side, waiting silently for their superior to make some gesture or command. The jailer slowly scanned the room, a look of disgust upon his old weathered face. Who wants to hang today? he asked the room. Everyone could instantly feel their hearts and stomachs drop, though this daily routine was a familiar and tiresome affair. The jailer walked up to one of the pyres, stretched out his hands and rubbed them together to warm himself. His movements sent wafts of smoke spiralling through the cell, small particles of ash and glowing embers fluttering around in the air like dying fireflies. Well, nobody answered. Heads hung low in his presence, and the inmates' eyes had all closed, willing him to leave, hoping that they would not be selected today. The jailer glanced back at his colleagues and casually gestured for them to move in. The two men obliged and instantly began dragging random people to their feet for scrutiny. I need eight volunteers, eight, that's all. The rest of you can have a day's reprieve. Again, nobody answered. By this time the two guards had roused a dozen men and children who were each standing silently in line against the wall. The jailer turned and wandered up to them. He briefly looked them over, and rubbing his chin in contemplation, he pointed to eight placed at random intervals down the line. The others quickly slumped back to the cold, wet, cobbled floor. Thank you for volunteering, he announced to them with a smirk upon his face. Another gesture to his colleagues, and they were ushered roughly from the room. The jailer hacked up another throat full of phlegm and spat it into the pyre's dull flames, causing it to sizzle and crack. He turned and followed the guards from the room. I'll be seeing you soon, 
he promised the remaining inmates. The heavy door was slammed shut behind him, and the jailer again struggled with the rusted iron lock until it clunked securely shut. In the corridor, the eight unwilling volunteers stood in single file. Despite their common predicament, none of them knew any other, except for a father and young son. The boy was no more than eight years old, and he huddled close to his father's leg as his father wrapped a reassuring arm around his shoulder. The condemned cell wasn't a place for socialising. Most inhabitants didn't feel like making acquaintances. Amongst the gathering was Harvey, the son of a fishmonger, tall and lean, 16 years of age. He wore a tatty linen shirt and a tight leather hide waistcoat with matching jodhpurs. He was soaked from dampness and sweat as were all his companions, and still carried the pungent stench of his trade, masked only slightly by the smoke and ash that created a layer of soot upon his skin, clogging his pores, disguising his fair hair and paleness, making him a generic inmate. He looked the same as any other man or child in Old Town Jail, just another nobody, soon to be cast into a mass, unmarked grave and left there to rot, all the nobodies together. Right, the governor wants to see you lot personally. The head jailer's tone was gruff, yet slightly jovial. But first, you all need a bloody wash. There ain't no way the governor wants you lot trampling over his rugs, dirtying his office with your filth. The jailer gestured towards his colleagues, whom nodded back and began manhandling the group of eight down the corridor. Enjoy it, it'll be the last wash you get, he shouted with a laugh at the solemn group as they were led away. Twenty minutes later, everyone was again standing in a line, this time outside the governor's office. Much of the grime and dirt had been forcefully scrubbed away by the overzealous prison guards, the rough treatment leaving fresh bruises and red raw skin. They were, however, now all distinguishable from each other. Their wet clothes had been stripped from them and replaced by dry hessian smocks. It wasn't long before they were marched barefoot through the large ornate office doors of the governor. The man that greeted them all was large and elderly. He stood at an intimidating height, dressed in a pristine suit and holding a beautifully crafted ivory walking cane. He stood by a large wooden desk and a quaint open fireplace. He placed a half-drunk glass of brandy upon the mantel before turning to face the group of convicts. No introductions were needed. Who here wishes to die today, huh? No response. The father tightened the reassuring grip upon his young son's shoulder as the governor chuckled to himself. He cast a cursory glance over the gathering in front of him, then swept back his jacket tails to reveal a pistol in a side holster. His hand gripped the gun, and he swiftly slid it free to point it at the head of the father. Without hesitation, he pulled the trigger. Gunpowder cracked through the air, and he sent the man flailing backwards to the floor. The smoke cloud quickly dissipated, leaving a room of shock and blood splatters. The son fell to his father's side, cradling his crippled form and screaming uncontrollably. 
The governor gestured to one of his guards, who nodded back before removing a pistol of his own and pointing it at the young boy's head. He then released a round of lead that left the child's body as limp and lifeless as his father's. The second cloud of smoke also dissipated, leaving the room now trembling and holding their breaths. The governor replaced his weapon and took another sip of brandy. Moments dragged until he, at last, addressed the group once again. I do not care about you. The old man strolled before the inmates like a sergeant major on parade inspecting his line of troops. I do not want to know your name, where you're from, or why you're here. I really do not give a damn. A father and son's brains now decorate my floor for no other reason than to prove to you how little all of you mean to me. And that when I say that you will die, you know that I mean it. All eyes remained cast to the floor, though all ears were attentive with apprehension. I have a proposition for you all, a very simple choice. The first option is that the remaining six of you will navigate a ship back to England, whereupon you will receive a full pardon for your crimes and become free men. The second option is that you die today upon the gallows. The six prisoners all looked to the governor now, an air of confusion and anxiety buzzing between them. The possibility of freedom, the chance of escaping the noose, None of the six were sailors, let alone in possession of the know-how to navigate a ship to England, but that seemed a trivial fact when accepting the offer meant the possibility of going home alive. So, unless there are any objections, your ship awaits, the governor stated. There came no response. Good. Chapter 2 Seventeen days had passed since the Charon had left port under cover of darkness bound for England. The ship glided atop undulating waves, dipping and climbing as it carved a path through the water. In the forward cabin sat five figures, huddled together around a small stove that was slowly warming a weak and watery broth. The chilling sea air was still keen enough to bite at their flesh, even behind bolted doors and beneath blankets. This cabin had once been reserved for a captain, but since the ship had been recommissioned, all its previous luxuries and adornments had been removed, and the interior reworked to accommodate its new purpose. The Charon had once belonged to the English Navy, under the name Canterbury, until it was decommissioned due to rotting timbers and an outbreak of typhoid. It had for the last twelve years sailed under the banner of a plague ship, transporting the bodies of dead servants to the English crown back from foreign lands for burial at home. The Charon, so called after the mythical ferryman who sailed souls to the land of the dead, did exactly that. The skull and crossbones emblazoned upon its flag was a warning for all other seafarers to stay clear and tell them that what lay aboard the ship was of no earthly value. None of the six were seamen. Some of them were barely even men, but steering the ship home was the serving of their sentence. 
Not that they had readily volunteered, but when faced with the end of a noose, this was a preferred alternative, although not by much. Every six months, a ship was filled with the corpses of those Englishmen who had given their lives abroad, and once full to capacity, it was launched in the general direction of England. It was a noble yet half-hearted act undertaken by the English governors to quell the demands of angry patrons back home, and to show a sense of solidarity and respect for their fellow men. However, the truth was that the strategy more likely served as a political tactic and a cover for ensuring the safe passage of smuggled foreign coin and treasured relics. Nobody attacked a ship full of corpses. It was also remarkably difficult to man such a ship. Therefore, upon the launch of each fully stocked vessel, six condemned prisoners were given the option of a full pardon in exchange for navigating the ship back to Portsmouth. When volunteers eventually ran out, the task became a demand upon threat of immediate death. The Charon currently held 316 dead Englishmen, six convicts, and a mortician. A mortician was placed aboard each ship, not to ascertain the causes of death or to perform autopsies, but rather to examine each body and remove anything of value from gold teeth to false eyeballs. The mortician was a direct employee of the governor, and the only person on board the ship that carried a gun. This was a fact that was made very clear to the five who sat together in the captain's cabin. Is it ready yet? Williams asked through chattering teeth to the youngest of the group, Stuart, who sat stirring the stew pot tenderly. The boy, barely seventeen, peered into the cauldron. He nudged some of the crudely chopped ingredients which floated to the surface. A mild waft of steam carried to the rest of the group. Maybe? That's good enough for me. I'm starving. Williams shuffled forward and offered his bowl. The other men also produced their bowls eagerly. Within minutes, they were hungrily slurping up their meal, the old wooden structure of the ship creaking under the strain of the sea, the wind whistling through every crack and crevice it found. Someone should take Phillips a bowl, Stuart remarked. The men all looked at the boy. His words had caused an unsettling anxiety to ripple amongst them. Sod that! He can help himself when his shift ends, Williams retorted gruffly. The group simply looked at each other in silence until he relented. Why don't you take him a bowl then, he snapped, staring at the boy. Harvey sensed the tension and quickly interjected. I'll take him some. Stuart took in a relieved breath and sighed. He looked at each of the others who turned from his gaze. Harvey leaned forward and filled a bowl before getting to his feet. He then shook his head and made for the door. Be sure to remind him he's got another three hours yet, Williams remarked. Harvey nodded and left the cabin, as Williams briskly helped himself to a second bowlful of stew. On the deck of the Charon, Harvey was greeted with the now familiar yet unwelcome sight of the old ship. The aged and weathered vessel strained against the pull and push of the sea, 
Waves crashed into its sides and water lapped over its edges, the dark spray causing a bit of mist to fill the air. The few lanterns that were lit were scattered sparingly along the deck to mark a path to the wheel. In front of it stood the lone figure of Phillips, his skinny frame silhouetted by the moonlight that beamed down upon the ship. He hugged the ship's wheel, his clothing glistening wet. When Harvey finally reached him, Phillips jumped away from him in shock. What the hell? Whoa, 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 whoa. I've got you some broth. Harvey held up the bowl. Phillips's eyes were bloodshot, and he shivered from the cold. He was an old man, and he had spent most of his adult life in prison. His face was disfigured with scars from numerous bar fights and brawls, and his hands were wrapped in rags to protect them against the rough, splintered wood of the wheel, but they still dripped with blood. He reached out for the soup. Have you pissed in it? No. Jacob's made it. It's fresh from the pot. Phillips scowled at the boy before snatching the bowl and drank it down. He coughed and gagged before handing the bowl back to Harvey. Tastes like piss. Williams asked me to remind you sod off. But Harvey stopped himself. The look upon Phillips' face told him everything he needed to know, specifically that he was going to get a punch if he carried on. Harvey wrapped his cloak tightly around himself and nodded to Phillips, who had already returned his attention back to the wheel. The younger man turned and made his way back to the cabin. Arsehole, he whispered under his breath. On his way back, Harvey glanced through the window into the upper hold, Moonlight spilt strips of light onto the cargo within, causing shadows to dance and stagger against the body sacks. The stench of rotting flesh caused him to gag, and he instinctively shielded his face with one arm. Gazing upward, he could see dozens of old sacks swinging from the rafters with the rocking movement of the ship, each heavy with its contents and dripping with a combination of indiscernible fluids and mould. Hands, feet, and other limbs dangled ungraciously from their hessian cocoons. Nausea rushed through Harvey's body, and he pulled himself away from the spectacle. A sudden bang against the wooden wall made him jump, and when he turned to look, he could see bloodshot eyes staring at him through a gaping split in the wood. What are you doing? Someone shouted angrily at him through the wall. Nothing, sir. Harvey shouted back over the howling wind. Before he could turn to leave, the door to the hole had been kicked open and Harvey was being manhandled into the dark recess of the hold. Chapter 3 Harvey found himself hoisted up roughly by the collar, his feet dangling as he was pinned back against the wall. What the hell are you doing? Spying on me? The man stared at Harvey with an angry grimace. The boy could almost feel the man's stubble as he pushed his weight against him. Harvey tried to turn his face away, but was clamped between the man's large hands in a vice-like grip. The man gritted his brown teeth as he strained under the boy's weight, and Harvey closed his eyes, trying not to retch from the foul breath that hit his face, warm, stale, and heavy with the smell of rum. No, not at all, I'm sorry, Mr Gibson. Gibson was the ship's mortician. He snorted in disgust before releasing his grip on the boy and sending him tumbling to the ground in a heap. 
Gibson turned and disappeared into the shadows of the room. But before Harvey had the chance to stand, the mortician was back again, this time with an oil lantern in hand. He hung it on the wall above Harvey before stepping back and perching himself upon a tall stool. The lamplight illuminated the small corner of the hold, and for the first time, Harvey could clearly see around him. He had never been inside it before. Nobody had, other than Mr. Gibson. However, everyone had heard the noises. The sharpening of blades upon the grinder, the sliding scrape of metal as large clamps and shears did their work. Now, Harvey could see the dreaded instruments for himself as they hung upon hooks on the wall. The metal was rusted and old, and only the recently sharpened blades shone through the thick red hue of oxidization. Beside him sat a mop and bucket, obviously used recently. Blood stained the wood, and the dirty red water seemed thick and congealed within the bucket. Gibson's attempts at cleaning had left long streaks of blood upon the floor, a grisly accumulation of indistinguishable flesh and guts lined at the edge of the room where he had grown bored of pecking up the mess. Mr. Gibson himself was wearing a full-length leather butcher's apron. It was much like the apron Harvey used to wear in his father's fishmongers, designed to protect you from the inevitable splash of blood and guts as you worked. Mr. Gibson's apron, however, was so saturated and thick with blood that it could never have been washed, even through years of butchering. He wore a dirty shirt with the sleeves rolled up to reveal muscular, tattooed arms. His hands were large and calloused, and looked as though even the lightest grip with them would sand wood. So what are you doing? I saw you looking. Harvey brushed himself down and readjusted his clothing. I was just heading back to the cabin and noticed the light through the window. I just... You were being nosy. Harvey fell silent. Gibson continued, I believe you were told very clearly to stay out of my way and do your job. I was. I'm sorry, sir. It won't happen again. Harvey's eyes wandered to the sacks hanging in the background. The lantern light revealed more of their gruesomeness. Mr. Gibson noticed Harvey's interest. Something grab your attention, boy. Harvey turned back to the mortician. No. Sorry, I just... It's a... Gibson rose from his seat and stepped forward to obscure Harvey's view. He then reached beneath his apron and pulled out a military pistol. I think you'd best be heading back. Harvey eyed the gun with trepidation and backed away. His fumbling hands blindly searching behind him for the door, Mr. Gibson stood tall, stretching to his full height and glaring at the boy in his most menacing manner. When Harvey finally reached the door, he swung it open. Don't let me catch you spying again, you hear? Mr. Gibson called. Yes, sir. Harvey nodded his agreement as he disappeared back into the stormy night. Chapter 4 Three Days Later Hold him down! Three of the crew roughly wrestled one of their shipmates to the deck. Bindings had been wrapped around his ankles and wrists, and he was braced tightly against the wooden floor. As they tightened the slack, the man screamed in agony. Mr. Gibson knelt down next to the man. 
I said hold him down. Harder than that. I don't want him fighting me. Williams, Harvey and the eldest of the crew, Smith, sat there with all their weight upon the man. What's your name, sailor? The man continued to scream in agony. Gibson looked down to the man's ailing left leg, then removed a small knife from his waistcoat and began to tear at the man's trousers, ripping away the cloth, revealing a pale, skinny leg. The man's calf had been torn apart by a large splinter of bone that stuck out awkwardly at an angle. Fresh blood mingled with congealed old blood and gangrenous pus. As the man wriggled, the wound split further and dark blood ran freely. Gibson didn't like the look of it. Perkins, Smith answered. What? Gibson remarked. The man's name is Perkins. Ah, this was from a fall yesterday? He fell down the stairs into the galley and broke his leg. Will he be okay? Harvey asked. The break was obvious, but he had never known gangrene to set in so quickly. Yet there it was, defying his medical knowledge. Perkins! Gibson shouted over the man's howling. The leg will have to come off! The man seemed oblivious to the mortician's words. It'll have to come off! He reiterated to the crew. You be sure to hold him steady, because this'll bloody hurt! The men were wide-eyed and anxious at the prospect of what was to come but nodded their agreement all the same. They each tightened their hold on Perkins and pushed down with all their might against the man's wriggling protests. Gibson readjusted his position atop the man and quickly fashioned a tourniquet from his belt, bracing his knee hard against the man's wounded leg. He reached over to the small burning pyre at his side and with a gloved hand removed a surgeon's saw from hot coals. The metal blade glowing bright red from the intense heat. With one hand, he pinched the man's skin taut against his leg, forming a clean site at which to perform the amputation. Many ship's surgeons took great pride in their ability to treat all manner of sickness and injury whilst at sea, indeed awaiting such things with eagerness as an opportunity to prove themselves and build a reputation. Mr. Gibson had once been such a man and had taken to being a seafaring doctor with relish. His skills had quickly improved and his reputation with them. However, in his later years, he had found that his lust for blood had waned, and he instead enjoyed more the financial rewards that came with working for the governor. He had spent the last few years making this voyage back and forth, his duty simply being to recover any and all items of value for the governor. This he did with ease, provided there were a good few bottles of rum at his disposal. On occasion, however, his skills as a surgeon would be called for, and he easily slipped back into his previous role. Amputation was not unfamiliar to him, and indeed he prided himself on being able to completely remove a limb in under two minutes. He paused briefly whilst he decided upon the right entry point for the serrated blade. The man's skin instantly sizzled and released a tendril of black smoke as his flesh began to burn and cauterize at the touch of the red-hot metal. Hold him! Gibson shouted, baring his teeth in readiness. No sooner had he shouted his instructions that he pushed the hot blade deep into the man's leg. The blade slipped easily through the flesh and muscle, and on the backward pull it had already 
spliced open his outer thigh, allowing the serrated edge of the sword to scrape against the femur bone. The man's screaming intensified, along with his struggling. The three shipmates strained against his fighting, but had to avert their eyes, the gory amputation in front of them bringing on even more nausea. There was a sudden jolt, and the man stopped struggling, unconscious from the pain. Gibson was able to build up a rough rhythm with the saw now, each stroke burrowing deeper into the man's leg, tiny flecks of splintered bone flicking up from the wound and blood sprayed everyone as he worked. The bright blade slowly began to dull, but the heat was still substantial enough to continue burning the flesh, quarterizing as it cut. Within a couple of minutes, Mr. Gibson had completely removed the erroneous limb. The last piece of flesh had ripped and fallen free before the blade even made it to the wood of the deck, and it immediately rolled away with the lolling motion of the ship. The onlooking crew yelped and jumped aside to allow the leg to roll past them as if it were some rabid animal. Gibson continued to hold the blade against the stump to ensure the heat that sealed it enough for him to dress it. Take him to his bed to rest, Gibson ordered, and the crew obeyed. Harvey? Harvey was surprised that the mortician had remembered his name. Yes, sir? Go kick that blasted leg overboard. He pointed a bloody finger up the deck to where the offensive limb was rolling about. Harvey slowly made his way towards it, a nauseous pang trying to climb his stomach as he toe-kicked the leg towards the edge of the deck. Once there, he tucked the toe of his boot under the fleshy calf muscle and flicked it up and over the edge of the ship into the sea. It made a faint splash as it briefly disappeared beneath the surface, then instantly re-emerged and continued to float in sight, bobbing along upon the waves. Harvey watched it rise and fall upon the water as it drifted away from the ship. Chapter 5 Three Days Later William sat within the meagre candle light which illuminated his surroundings just enough for him to be getting a headache. He would have closed his eyes and gotten some sleep if not for the constant moaning coming from the beds opposite him. Shut up! He shouted for the umpteenth time at the feverish Perkins. The small chart room at the back of the captain's quarters had been requisitioned into a makeshift hospital. Three of the crew had now been taken ill in quick succession and were inexplicably getting worse. Perkins swung about within a hammock, his one remaining leg dangling from the canvas envelope. Blood was still dribbling from his stump, enough to have stained the hammock almost entirely. He wrapped his arms around himself, fighting nausea and pain, a bottle of spirits tightly cradled within his grip. On the floor, was Stuart, the youngest of the crew. He was lying upon a bed of straw and an old sack cloth. He had vomited more than any person should, and over the past two days he had lost almost half his body weight to diarrhoea and intense sweats. He struggled to even breathe. The third invalid was Phillips. Phillips had seemed a hardy figure of a man, tight-lipped and offensive if pushed. He had taken more than his fair share of shifts at the ship's wheel, but that was how he had wanted it. 
and nobody felt inclined to argue. However, he too had gone the sickly way of young Stuart. All three were incapacitated and in a huge amount of pain. Mr. Gibson had already checked them over, but had been able to do little to alleviate their symptoms. Williams sat on a high-backed desk chair. He smoked his pipe and grumbled under his breath. The smell in the room was enough to turn his stomach. Despite the small windows being fully open, it seemed as though the room wanted to cling heartily to the vile odour and gas contained within it. Stuart began coughing, his wispy breath barely enough to survive. The cough became a choke, and then he began to shake and jerk as a seizure took hold. His bowels opened noisily, and the dank slime of mucousy feces spilt out of him and all over the floor, instantly saturating the straw bedding and trickling along the ruts in the wooden floor. Williams got to his feet, his immediate concern being for the leather in his boots as opposed to the state of the boy. SHUT UP! Stuart was oblivious, caught in the semi-conscious rapture of his fitting. SHUT UP, YOU DIRTY BEGGAR! Stuart did not stop. He continued to shake uncontrollably and to choke upon his own breath and vomit. Williams had at this point had enough and strode over to where the boy lay shaking violently amongst his own filth. He aimed a quick, hard kick at the boy, connecting cleanly into his chest. The boy rolled over from the force, but continued to fit. Shut up, for God's sake! Shut up and die already! Williams clenched his fists in frustration, and once he could no longer contain his anger, he knelt down and wrapped his hands firmly around Stuart's young throat. He began to squeeze with zeal, his fingers crushing the muscle and sinew beneath the skin. The boy's eyes opened wide and he stared Williams in the face. Determination and hatred boiled within Williams and he clenched his teeth, exerting every last drop of power from his exhausted body. Williams's face began to take on a bluish hue and his tongue popped out between yellow teeth as the very life was strangled from him. The door of the cabin swung open and Harvey burst in. He quickly assessed the room and grabbed a chamber pot. He ran to where the helpless boy lay, swinging the pot heavily upon the head of Williams. It collided and Williams released his grip and tumbled to the floor. What the hell are you doing? You're meant to be watching over them! Williams quickly got to his feet, but found himself unsteady and stumbled back against the wall. He held a hand tightly to his head, where a small trickle of blood had already begun to descend across his face. Watching them die, you mean? He flinched under the pain of his injury. God damn it! Harvey knelt down beside Stuart, whose seizure had subsided, and now lay unconscious on his side. Harvey didn't have any medical training, and didn't know what he was looking at, but he was happy the seizure had subsided and that the boy was no longer being throttled. He still held the chamber pot in one hand, pointing it threateningly at Williams. What is wrong with you? They're already dead! This is all pointless! Let them out of their misery. And that's what you were doing. Putting him out of his misery. Aye, and you better watch your back or I'll put you out of yours and all. With that, Harvey briskly got to his feet and stormed over to Williams, who still leaned heavily upon the wall for support. He had just enough time to raise his head and look the fishmonger's son in the eye before the chamber pot was brought down upon his head for the second time. This time, Williams didn't get back up. Chapter 6 
seven days later. Harvey cautiously made his way along the lantern-lit path across the ship. He paused momentarily to take a couple of deep, lingering breaths of the bitter sea air, and then faced the door to the cargo hold. All of the crew had heard the gunshots from below deck, and there was only one man with a gun. Harvey had taken it upon himself to see if Mr. Gibson was okay. Brief flashes of light broke through the gaps in the wood panelling as the lanterns inside the hold swung with the motion of the ship. The thick, muggy odour of incense wafted into Harvey's nostrils, even through the bracing breeze. Smoke emanated from the room as if it were alight. Though as Harvey opened the door, he was not greeted with the pleasing warmth of a fire, but the continued bite of the sea's chill. He entered the room and closed the door behind him. Mr. Gibson! the boy called out. Inside the hold, it was eerily quiet, with only the creak of the ship and the twist and stretch of the ropes that held the many body sacks to the ceiling beams to break the silence. The few lanterns that were lit in the room illuminated enough for Harvey to see that Gibson was not there. He noticed that many of the tools were missing from the walls, namely the saws and blades. Harvey slowly picked his way to the back of the room, where Gibson had laid corpses, fresh from autopsy, and partially wrapped them ready to hang with the others. The smell of rotting flesh intensified. The incense was no longer masking the ill fragrance. Harvey could feel nausea spreading through his stomach. Once at the end of the room, he was presented with an open stairway that led down into the depths of the ship's cargo hold. This was where he suspected the majority of bodies were held, and also where Gibson may be. Mr. Gibson, are you down there? Harvey slowly made his way towards the top step, carefully shoving away body sacks as they swung back and forth about his head. He peered down into the ship's stomach, but even squinting, he still failed to make anything out. He began to step down into the darkness, one foot after the other, his hand firmly holding the rope banister to steady himself. Mr. Gibson? Once at the bottom, Harvey could sense that movement surrounded him. Even before his eyes adjusted to the change in light, he heard scuttling and scraping against the wooden floors and walls. He twisted and turned, trying to follow the sounds and reaching out an arm to create a pitiful barrier around him like a blind man trying to negotiate an unfamiliar room. The smell down in the heart of the ship was thick and sweaty. The saltiness of the seawater mingled with the river of blood that sloshed about and made for a slippery floor to navigate. As the ship rocked and dipped, each footfall was more precarious than the last. Down here, the incense smoke was so dense and overpowering that it burned Harvey's nostrils and made his throat sore. He began to cough as the fumes invaded his lungs and tightened his chest. Slowly, as his eyes grew used to the darkness, he began to notice all the details he had until now missed. The piles of bodies lay three or four corpses high, wrapped loosely in muslin cloth and wet from the slurry of fluids that covered the wooden floor. Whatever substance had been used to keep the bodies preserved 
had not been entirely successful. Flesh was most certainly rotting down here. For the first time, Harvey could finally pinpoint the source of the scratching noises. It appeared that this was where all the rats on board the ship nested. They had seemingly made this their home, and with good reason. Harvey could make out dozens of tiny, hairy bodies scampering around the floor and running freely between and over the bodies. Some chased each other with purpose, some sat on hind legs cleaning themselves, and some were eagerly gnawing at the dead soldiers. More than one corpse had pieces missing from his face, and teeth marks and claw scratches bordered gaping holes in their heads where many rodents had presumably enjoyed a tasty snack. Eyeballs hung upon withered stalks, and shriveled lips shrunk back to reveal pained toothy grins. What the hell are you doing in here? Gibson shouted to Harvey, making him jump in fright. Mr. Gibson was smoking a cigarette, and standing beside a large, thick, wooden butcher's block. Upon the slab was the body of a man long since dead. He was stripped naked and curiously handcuffed to the slab like a druidic sacrifice. Upon the man's chest was a large gold-chained pendant. The bulbous stone that sat at its centre was milky white, and the veins of colour that ran through it seemed to move and swirl as if the stone were alive. Harvey had never seen such a stone, and he became transfixed by its strange allure. Gibson held up his pistol and asked Harvey again. Well, what are you doing here? I heard gunshots. And? And I was just checking you were okay. Harvey continued to glance at the pendant upon the chest of the dead man, and Gibson moved to interrupt his line of vision. I'm fine. You can be... The dead man violently lifted his head up, screaming and straining under the chains that held him down. It made Harvey jump back in shock, but Gibson merely rammed his pistol against the dead man's temple and pulled the trigger. The gunshot instantly quietened the corpse, a fresh, smoking hole blown in its head. The corpse's muscles relaxed, and its limbs went limp again as Mr. Gibson took another drag of his cigarette. The boy stared in disbelief at what he had just seen. What the hell was that? He whispered, barely managing to push the words out. The gruff mortician blew smoke in his direction before giving a heavy sigh. Buggered if I know. Chapter 7 I really don't want to hear your bullshit, Williams barked at Harvey as they sat around a small stove eating biscuits and broth. You need to go down there and see for yourself. I'm not going anywhere near that bloody lunatic or his dead bodies. But the pendant, the stone, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen works the night shift at the Oak Tavern in York and I plan on seeing her again. So I ain't sticking my nose in matters that don't concern me. You'd do well to remember that yourself. Those masts are made for hanging more than just sails. I tell you, something awfully wrong is going on down there. That man was dead, but he woke up and was bloody upset. 
Mr. Gibson had to shoot him in the head. I don't want to hear it anymore, right? Just leave me out of it. William scrambled to his feet, and with bowl still in hand, he climbed up into his bunk. Harvey knew there was no point telling him any more about it. What with most of the crew seriously ill, he was left with little choice but to either ignore what he had seen, as William suggested, or to go and speak with Gibson again. The latter option was the least appealing, but Harvey knew full well he couldn't just let what he had seen be. He was compelled to investigate further. He had heard many tavern stories of ghouls that preyed upon the living, but the thought of the dead rising to life was a far more terrifying prospect, more so considering that their ship was hundreds of miles from land and that the lower decks were crammed to the rafters with dead bodies. Harvey had nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, and he needed to find out what Gibson was doing, even if it meant sticking his nose where it wasn't wanted. The only other fit member of the crew was Smith, and Harvey was left with no alternative than to get the old man on side. He hadn't actually spent much time with Smith. Despite the confined space aboard the ship, the man had pretty much kept to himself, only really appearing at mealtimes and sometimes not even then. Harvey had seen him from time to time attending to duties amongst the rigging and masts, and he had seemed quite at home at sea. Harvey hoped that now was as good a time for their first real conversation as any. Before he even got to the door, Smith himself burst in, shouting at the top of his lungs and looking terrified. Ship! There's a bloody ship! It's coming for us! He screamed in Harvey's face. Harvey froze in disbelief and then quickly cast a glance to Williams, who remained undisturbed in his bunk. Without waiting for an answer, Smith grabbed Harvey by the arm and pulled him out onto the deck. They ran together to the ford of the ship to get a good view of the other vessel. There it was, clear as day. It sailed with no colours, but had clearly changed course to intercept the Charon. Why would they want to board us? Surely they know we're a dead boat. It makes no sense. Smith shivered as fear overtook him. What do we do? Harvey asked. The old man paused briefly whilst he racked his brain, considering the possibilities and watching the other ships slowly gain ground upon them. He eventually turned to Harvey and squeezed his shoulders. Hide! Before long, the unknown ship had pulled alongside the Charon and had attached ropes across its bow to anchor them together and allow the crew to traverse across. Five men landed on the deck of the Charon and quickly took up defensive positions. One of them was clearly the captain. He stood taller than the rest, a tricorn hat upon his head and a blunderbuss so big it could blow a man clean away strapped to his back. Harvey could see the other ship from his hiding place. Through the cracks in the woodwork he could make out at least a dozen more men that had remained aboard the other ship. A gunshot returned his attention to the pirates on his own ship as the captain shouted, Where are ya? He scanned the deck, looking for signs of life. His men all held their ground, guns raised and sweeping the air. What about Williams and the others? Smith whispered. There's nothing we can do. All we need to keep out of sight. Maybe they'll take what they want and go. But we haven't got anything worth taking. The door of the cargo hold swung open, and Gibson stepped out. He held his gun in front of him, 
pointing it at the captain. Hold on! Harvey gasped. They both watched as Gibson walked up to the head pirate. The other crew members circled and closed ranks around him. When he eventually got face to face with the captain, he lowered his gun and proceeded to give a firm handshake. They know each other. What's going on? Harvey and Smith looked to one another in puzzlement, then returned their gaze to the pirates and watched a brief conversation ensue before four of the intruders were led by Gibson back into the cargo hold. They were gone for a few minutes before emerging again with a large sack. The men strained under its weight, and when they put it down, it clattered to the deck with a distinctively metallic thud. The pirate captain whipped back one of the corners of the sack to reveal a large number of gold trinkets. Harvey was amazed to see the bounty of treasure that Gibson had been hiding in the hold. The captain appeared happy with the haul and ordered his men to take the sack and began passing its contents over to the awaiting men on the other ship. Once the pirates were back, they spread out across the deck and began searching the ship. Harvey and Stuart ducked back behind their cover. We need somewhere better to hide, Harvey said. They'll kill us if they catch us. The two shipmates scrambled out of their nook and made their way further into the bows of the ship. The sound of footsteps upon the wooden boards that were inches from their heads was terrifying. Both Harvey and Smith held their breaths as the pirates continued their search of the ship above them. Each footfall making the aged wooden boards creak and complain. Dust and dirt knocked free from above poured on the two shipmates as they huddled behind some barrels in the galley. They had inched closer to the pirates so as to get an idea of their motives and had managed to get close enough to hear every word spoken and every order given. They were even close enough to smell the rank, sweaty odour of the pirates themselves. They immediately noticed a change in attitude towards Gibson when a man emerged from the mortician's hold and brought out the pendant. Harvey watched as the pirates offered it to the captain despite the mortician's complaints. Through the cracks in the wooden deck, Harvey saw the captain look disgustedly at Gibson and swiftly strike him across the face, sending him down to one knee. Gibson's protests were ignored as he was grabbed roughly around his arms and raised back to his feet. String him up! The pirate captain hollered. Gibson was dragged, kicking and screaming across the deck. Harvey repositioned himself in order to continue watching as the mortician was beaten about the head and a noose dropped around his neck. The knot was tightened and then a line of men took the slack of the rope and pulled as one upon it. Gibson was immediately dragged across the deck and off of his feet, his hands grabbing tightly at the rope as it strangled him. A second heave and the mortician was lifted high into the air. With each further heave, he rose higher towards the crossbeams of the mast, his legs flailing wildly as his screams became restricted and garbled. Harvey's heart was beating fast, the fear in him mounting to a state of wild panic. He began to shake and hyperventilate. The pirates were so close, so very close. He could hear them breathing, see them smiling, and their stench was all around him. He could almost 
taste the rum upon their breaths and smell their stale body odour as if it were his own. The click of a pistol hammer made both shipmates freeze in horror, and Harvey turned, just as a pirate's fist connected with his face. Chapter 8 Hours passed. Beneath the brightly moonlit sky, burly men came and went from the ship, straining under the weight of sacks and barrels filled with whatever valuable treasures Gibson had smuggled for them. When Harvey regained consciousness, the fear that had previously filled his heart immediately returned. His hands and feet were tied together, and a larger rope tied him to a barrel. He desperately tried to free himself, but soon realised it was impossible. Tied up beside him was Smith. His head was slumped to one side as he was still in the grips of unconsciousness. Harvey could spy the pirate captain at the far end of the ship talking to a few of his men. He wore Gibson's pendant prominently around his neck. The milky stone shone with a preternatural brightness as it reflected the moon's light. Harvey's eyes then fell upon Gibson himself. Though he tried as best he could to avert his gaze from the body of the mortician as it swung with the sway of the ship, the noose around his neck dug deep into his flesh, and he dangled like a marionette puppet on a string. His complexion had turned to a mottled green as the fluids had drained from his head. His eyes were now bulbous protrusions, and it seemed beyond reason that they remained in their sockets. His tongue had become bloated, and seemed to fill the whole of his mouth. The sight made Harvey feel sick to his stomach. Smith, wake up! The man remained motionless, limp in the grip that binds around him. Harvey suspected that without them, he would fall in a heap upon the floor. The moon was now high in the late evening sky, and beaming down upon the ship it cast an eerie luminescent sheen over everything it touched. The winds had died down, and the ship floated quite silently upon the calm waters. Some men had begun a card game. Whilst others were drinking, watching the few remaining men continue to shuffle and drag their spoils to their own hold, a gunshot broke the silence, echoing from within the bowels of the Charon. It was followed by shouting and stampede-like footfall. Two men burst through the door of the cargo hold onto the deck, and all the other pirates stopped to look at the commotion. Before they could explain the noise, another man emerged from the hold. He was holding a hand to his face, blood pouring freely from an open wound on his cheek. He wheezed for breath and fell to his knees. As he tumbled forward, he spun around with his gun held high and let off another round. The shot hit the torso of a fourth man who emerged from the doorway. This man, however, was not one of the pirate crew. He was completely naked, saturated in oil and grime. His arms were outstretched, and he had a gaping mouth, the teeth within it gritted and grinding. His face wore a frenzied yet pained expression as he gargled unintelligible growls. The man briefly recoiled from the force of the shot, but continued to bear down upon the pirate as if nothing had occurred. Even when the unloaded pistol was thrown at the advancing man, it merely bounced off of him with no effect. 
As the naked man threw himself at his quarry, the pirate's shipmates grabbed the naked man roughly by the arms and dragged him away. His oily, charred limbs lashed out as he tried desperately to bite anyone that was in range. Once he had been dragged clear, the men stepped back, allowing the unnatural creature to rise to its feet. Knives and iron clubs were produced as the pirates circled the crazed man. Without fear or care, it approached the nearest pirate, arms still outstretched and mouth open ready to bite. This was followed by a barrage of stabs and blows from the pirates that sent the naked man back to the ground. They continued to beat him. He continued to fight back with no care for how much or how hard he was hit. When at last the creature stopped moving, its head had been completely obliterated. The pirates stood around the body, breathless and all covered in blood, their weapons dripping with it. The captain pushed his way through the gathering and stood by the dead man. He kicked the torso and the corpse rolled slightly under the force. Throw him overboard! The command was obeyed immediately. The pirates manhandled the corpse and soon it was sinking into the darkness of the sea. Chapter 9 More of them! The shout rang from somewhere to the left of the deck and men ran to barricade the cargo hold door but two more undead creatures emerged both also naked living corpses covered in oil and soot. They pushed their way through the door with unnatural strength and stumbled onto the deck dragging twisted and broken legs behind them as they approached the pirates with arms outstretched and toothy snarls on their faces. Without hesitating, the men attacked the two creatures and soon their bodies were being dumped overboard as well. The captain strode over to the hold, picking up one of the lanterns and holding it up to the small window in the wall. Even through the thick dirt that had accumulated upon the glass, he could see more undead creatures wandering about inside their moans filling the ship. He stepped back from the door and went over to the cargo hold's main loading hatch, which was set into the floor. He lowered the lantern so as to illuminate the lower deck and found dozens of eyes all staring back at him. They all reached out their arms and groaned in unison as if being awoken from a state of slumber. The captain stumbled back from the hatch as hands began to reach through the latticed struts. What the hell? He screamed in surprise. Harvey watched the episode from his vantage point upon the higher deck, the rope restraints still tight around his chest and legs. His hands had been bound with a finer twine, although the tightness was no less painful. He craned his neck to get a better view of the commotion, but the poor light in the crowd of men that had formed obscured any chance of a decent look. The kerfuffle obviously meant that something was not going to plan. A groan from beside him caught him by surprise, and he turned his head to face his shipmate. Smith was tied as tightly as he. The old man's head had now risen, although it still lolled from side to side. He let out another low groan. Smith? Bloody hell! I thought you were a goner! Smith turned his head towards Harvey. But once the boy realised that his shipmate was not okay. Something very peculiar had come over him. 
Smith lifted his head and gazed at Harvey, but his eyes were not the deep hazel Harvey had come to know. A pair of pearlescent white bulbs replaced them, devoid of life or character. Harvey stared back, unsure as to what was transpiring. Smith? Are you okay? The old man did not reply. Instead, he strained against his binds and lunged toward Harvey, his mouth wide open, snapping his jaws and barking like a rabid dog. Harvey pulled away as best he could, desperately scrambling against his restraints to distance himself from the man. Help! Help! Harvey began shouting for any aid that may come his way, but nobody was listening. They all had their own problems to deal with. The cargo hold door suddenly broke away from its hinges, and wood splintered and snapped under the force of the undead creatures pushing it from within. The door flew forward and landed with a clatter upon the deck, and a flurry of naked and grotesquely disfigured men stumbled through the opening, some falling upon the broken door, others clambering with large strides over the top of them and climbing their way onto the deck. The sight of the men, who had until recently been littered around the floral Gibson's morgue, filled Harvey with terror. He stared as dissected corpses staggered across the deck. Some had their stomachs slit open and organs removed. Some had their jaws broken and teeth hammered out, and one unfortunate soul still had a cranial sore wedged into his skull mid-autopsy. There was so much carnage and gore spread across the deck that you could have mistaken the ship for hell itself. Intestines dragged across the ground, and a hundred sets of organs and limbs slapped and slid against each other until you couldn't tell where one man ended and another began. The animated corpses were met by numerous pirates heavily armed with clubs, knives and anything they could get their hands to cause damage. The sound of bones crunching and breaking cut through the winds that were beginning to build again. The ship had started to rock as the waves intensified and everyone fought against the rise and fall. Some men lost their footing and collapsed over each other. Some had grabbed the rigging for balance and a few brave others were even climbing it in order to find a higher vantage point or some form of safety. Man after undead man emerged from the cargo hold, each demonic and contorted in their agony until at least 200 had invaded the deck. Each strike, punch and kick deflected off of them with little effect. Weapons made contact and visible injury was being caused with huge gouges and cuts open and reveal the white glint of bone. The blood was slowly flowing, almost gelatinous in consistency. It ran in thick and mucousy globs from open wounds and soon the deck was a bloody battlefield. The undead men dropped after unearthly amounts of punishment, but even then some continued to gyrate and crawl with possessed limbs that were intent on their frenzied attack. The man at Harvey's side continued to gnash his teeth, trying to sneak a bite of the boy's flesh. His fingers curled and crooked, scratching at nothing. His whole body as possessed as the disembodied limbs that continued to slither and crawl across the deck. It was as if his very flesh had a life of its own. When one of the pirates came close, Smith tried to claw and bite his face. Harvey screamed at him, Help me! 
The pirate turned to Harvey in consternation, only to have another frenzied man overpower him and sink his teeth deep into the pirate's cheek. The pirate screamed in agony, the undead man's clamped jaws ripping the plump flesh from his face. Muscle flapped back from it, exposing the pirate's bones. Pirate and attacker scuffled across the floor in a desperate tussle. Harvey watched, and Smith craned his neck and strained towards the men on the floor. He panted and groaned with a frenzied passion that Harvey just couldn't fathom. Was he that desperately drawn to the men? Was it anger or thirst for action that drove him, or was he just being driven insane by whatever evil magic was animating all of the dead? Whatever was driving the insanity, Harvey knew he needed to get away from him and off the ship, to find some place far away from everyone, somewhere he could be safe, but first he needed to escape his bindings. They were still painfully tight around his waist and legs. His continual wriggling had not loosened them. Harvey noticed some of the undead soldiers advancing up the stairs towards them. Some staggered and some crawled upon their bellies, tendrils of intestines and fat dragging behind them. The storm had picked up and the roll of the ship had caused everyone to weave and fight against the incessant tilt of the slippery floor. Harvey began frantically struggling against his bindings, but knew with a heavy heart that he wasn't going anywhere. He could do nothing but watch the advancing horde of living dead with horrified anticipation. Bloody hands stretched out towards him, clamping with incredible strength around Harvey's ankles and legs. Frenzied corpses clambered over each other to get to the boy and each jostled to be first to their prey. Hands clenched his arms, and rough bony fingers clawed at his neck and pulled his hair. Harvey held his breath in anticipation of the gaping bloody mouths closing in, and then they were upon him. Teeth biting down upon his flesh, bloody fangs piercing his skin and gliding through layers of muscle to the bone. The pain was immediately unbearable, and he screamed like he had never screamed before. His lungs burned, his eyes bulged from their sockets, and he threw his head back in agony. Every sinew burned, every muscle strained against his restraints, until at last the pain was too much, and he fell into a dark, tumultuous unconsciousness. Chapter 10 The first thing Harvey was aware of was the agonising pain that ran through his body. The next thing was the menacing glare of Williams, who knelt next to him, attending to a dressing on the boy's ankle. Harvey flinched and attempted to scramble away. He quickly gave in to the clutch of deep inner pain which crippled the idea from his thoughts. He bent double as spasms ran through his stomach. He couldn't help but throw up upon the floor and his own leg. For God's sake, sit down! Williams's voice was stern and to the point. You need to relax and shut up! Harvey looked up from his doubled up fetal position. The fresh bandages that Williams had applied were already soaked in blood, and Harvey's head throbbed with an intense pain. He struggled for breath. What happened? I saved your bloody life, that's what's happened! Harvey dropped his head 
Not sure how to respond. Thank you? Yeah, well, thank yous ain't gonna keep us alive. What the hell was happening up there? Williams pointed up to the ceiling and the deck beyond. Harvey looked about him. He didn't recognise the room, but he hadn't been in many of the lower decks. I don't know. Pirates came aboard and killed Gibson. I knew it would be to do with that crazy bugger. I told you to leave it alone. Harvey breathed a heavy sigh. The men. He considered his words carefully, not wanting to sound crazy. The dead soldiers came to life and started attacking everyone. They killed the pirates. Aye, that's what I figured. They almost killed you and all. When I heard the commotion, I climbed up on deck. It was like all hell had broken loose. Hundreds of men fighting like animals, biting, kicking, scratching. I had never seen such violence. And then I saw you. You're bloody lucky I did. There were five of them all over you. I managed to beat my way and cut you loose. Why? Why? That's gratitude for you. I am grateful, but why? You could have left me for dead. Despite what you think of me, I'm not a complete arsehole. What about Smith? Williams rubbed his beard in contemplation before answering. He took a bloody bite out of me. He's dead now. You can be sure of that. What's happening now? I don't know. I barricaded us in here, and just after sunrise it went quiet. I've not heard anything for a few hours now. Have you had a look? Williams frowned at the boy. No. By all means, be my guest. He gestured towards the door of the small cabin. We need to get off this ship, Harvey remarked. Aye, I'm hoping you've got some good ideas. One against hundreds is crazy, but I figure two of us doubles my chances of survival. At least, I figure you won't stab me in the back, although my head is still aching from the bloody piss pot. Harvey gave a small, wry smile. Chapter 11 A weak and nauseous Harvey kept lookout throughout the cracks in the wood panelling. Williams had gone ahead to secure their passage to the landing boat and to start the fire that they hoped would send the whole ship to the bottom of the sea. As night closed in and the failing sun sent dark shadows across the horizon, he began to hear the distant moving of bodies within the ship. He could feel the slight vibration of shuffling and scrambling throughout the woodwork and knew it had started again. With the setting of the sun came renewed life and the cursed beings arising from their deathly slumber. The spirits that possessed them were indeed restless and pernicious in their intent. The boy watched as arms began to emerge from between the slats of the cargo hold's deck hatch, their hands clawing at the moon. He could hear the moans and groans of the undead, wanting their freedom and desperate to sate their vicious hunger. Williams's makeshift barricade at the hold's entrance began to crack and split again as their building weight pushed against it. As the moon rose higher in the sky, Harvey could sense a greater strength and urgency in the undead hordes, and the moon seemed to rise like a rocket that night. A great feeling of unease and agitation washed over Harvey. He wasn't scared, but he didn't quite feel right. He continued to watch the undead as they began to emerge through the barricaded door, and he himself felt an increasing sense of restlessness. His wounds began to itch, and he found no relief from scratching them. 
The irritation increased until each wound he had sustained from last night's attack was warm to the touch and tingling. Each cut and gash became an infuriating annoyance, the source of a burning irritation that he could not sate. Harvey's attention floundered under the weight of his own personal discomfort. The tingling was spreading, slowly making its way through his whole body. He found himself rubbing against the walls and even the floor trying to calm the itching. Slowly his bandages began to peel away from him, exposing the wounds beneath, but even then he continued to scratch. Soon fresh blood covered his hands and clothing. He had ruptured his wounds again and scraped the flesh until he was clearly touching bone. He began to rock on his haunches. Come on, Williams, come on, he spoke to himself, his frustration turning to panic. He was becoming feverish, and he didn't know why. Was he succumbing to the same dark curse that turned the dead into savage creatures? Or was he so close to death himself that his own dying flesh was turning against him? He peered through the slats in the wood towards the deck. He saw the cargo hold door finally give in, and dozens of zombified men clamber out and begin to scour it. They were feverishly searching for their prey, for the last two surviving people on board. He cast a glance to the landing boat, but Williams was still nowhere to be seen. Harvey peered up at the moon. It shone with a heavenly brightness, its ethereal halo pulsating as it passed behind intermittent clouds. It reminded Harvey of Gibson's pendant, of the large, pale stone that shone brightest beneath the moonlight, and the way the colours within it appeared to swirl and pulsate as if it were itself connected to the moon, drawing power from its light. In his mind, he could see the pendant as if it were before him, hanging around the neck of a large, shadowy figure. Around that figure were many others, all slowly moving in unison from side to side, swaying gently as they surrounded him. Harvey's mind began to block out his surroundings, and he could hear the deep, melodic chanting of men as they swayed together around him all led by the large shadowy figure with the moonstone pendant. They gathered closer and began to reach out to Harvey. He could feel the cold shadows touching his skin, passing through him, hear the pained cries of a thousand innocent lives ending at the end of a blade. The fear of a peaceful land being corrupted and destroyed by a belligerent invader as well as the angry, vengeful spirits of a whole people being channeled through a holy relic of their past. The stone shone brightly in Harvey's mind, its light blinding him. His senses tingled, and he could smell blood. Harvey felt an intense rush of adrenaline flow through his veins. His teeth began to chatter as he arched his back to relieve the ache in it. He could hear his sinews crackle and slide past each other as his spine stretched and popped. He was filled with a new focus and a heightened level of strength. He rose from his crouched position and found a hatchet, then grabbed the lantern in one hand and kicked open the cabin door. 
The noise of splintering wood was dulled against the whistling breeze, but still enough to attract a couple of the undead. They turned and began to hobble over to Harvey. As they drew near, he swung the hatchet heavy upon their heads and sent them tumbling to the ground. Williams! Harvey screamed, trying to alert his shipmate a final time. There came no reply. Harvey sidestepped and jumped over rigging and ropes until he reached the small rowing boat. With a dozen heavy strikes of the hatchet, he set the vessel free and it tumbled to the waves below. As he neared the deck's edge, a hand grabbed him from behind, and Harvey crumpled under its powerful grip. He turned as a vicious jaw clamped down on his shoulder, splitting his flesh from his bone. He screamed in agony and pushed the attacker away, a chunk of his shoulder still dangling from the creature's mouth. It was the pirate captain. There around his neck was the pendant, its bright stone pulsating like a heartbeat. The captain started back at him. This mind clearly projected no thought but to kill. With his arms outstretched and teeth bared, he screamed an unholy howl as he lunged towards Harvey. The boy swung the hatchet and landed it squarely into the face of the pirate captain. It wedged in deep and Harvey had to release his grip upon it, leaving it embedded. Oi! The holler came from across the deck, where Harvey could see Williams waving a hand to attract his attention. He was desperately kicking away undead creatures as they converged upon him. He held aloft a burning lantern, and other small fires around him had already begun to spread. Williams! Come on! But Harvey could see full well that Williams was not going to make it to him. He watched as the man fought against the onslaught of demonic monsters, grabbing at him and gnawing at his limbs. Harvey stared helplessly as his shipmate was overpowered and stumbled from the upper to the lower deck. He staggered across the floor, edging too close to the cargo hold lattice. Arms grabbed at his feet and legs, and he began to flail about trying to free himself. Harvey could do nothing but watch. But as he looked on, the captain was back at him again. His hand grabbed the boy about the throat and squeezed tightly, restricting his breath and forcing him to pull away. He could feel his footing begin to slide from under him, and in that instant he lunged forward and grabbed hold of the undead captain in an instinctive attempt to regain his balance, taking hold of the moonstone pendant that hung around the captain's neck and clinging to it. He dragged the captain towards him, and they both toppled over the edge of the ship and crashed into the sea below. Chapter 12 Two weeks later He's dead, sir, a junior night watch officer reported to his superior. No shit, the chief replied, looking the green skinny corpse up and down. The harbour master reported the boat drifting in with the tide. When he dragged it in, he found the body and reported it. He only looks like a kid. The chief scrunched up his face and put a hand to his nose. He bloody stinks. Looks like he's been eating himself. He pointed to the boy's mangled arms and feet and the congealed blood around his mouth. It's too late in the day for something like this. I've gone right off me dinner now. What shall we do with him, sir? The chief poked the corpse with a stick and the decayed body sloshed around amongst the filthy slime and blood that filled the bottom of the boat. The dead boy's arm dropped free, and within its deathly grip was a thick, glistening golden chain. 
dependent upon it, held a large milky stone, which flickered and swirled with an unnatural aura beneath the early evening sky. Hello, what's this? the chief mumbled. Maybe this poor soul wasn't so innocent after all, sir. Looks like we might have a little thief on our hands. Blimey, now that is a thing, isn't it? Makes you wonder if this little toe rag was making a getaway with treasure and got his comeuppance. What shall we do with him? The chief got a fresh whiff of the decayed flesh and turned away in disgust. Send him to the morgue for now. What about the pendant? Bag it and tag it. Send it in the wagon with the boy. I'm sure it can all wait until after the weekend. Lock them up together in the morgue and I'll send someone down on Monday morning to sort out the paperwork. Right you are, sir. Right you are. The junior night watchman grappled with the corpse of the boy. He dragged it from the boat, bit by bit, and wrapped it in hessian, then manhandled it into the back of a waiting wagon before having a closer look at the pendant. The stone appeared to swirl beneath its glassy exterior as if the light were reacting with it, eliciting a silver and blue shine. It was mesmerising. The officer let it reflect the evening moon's glow. Sometime this evening, Jones, the chief shouted at his subordinate. The man wrapped the pendant in matching hessian and tossed it into the carriage with the dead body of the boy. Sir, are you sure about leaving him till Monday? He's going to kick up an awful stink in there. That's why I have you, Jones. Guess what you'll be mopping up Monday morning? A dejected Officer Jones grimaced at the thought. Thank you, sir. Stop fretting, Jones. The morgue is just full of dead people. They aren't going anywhere. <laughs>